Yeah, if you haven't turned yet to John chapter 7, I'd love for you to join me there. We've got a lot to cover and a little time to do it. How many of you remember, it was maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, we were in here gathered, and there was this bird that kept flying into the window right there. You remember that? Yeah. Everybody? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Joseph was doing the offertory at that time, and he just kind of stoically kept going like he should, boom, and, and without distraction. And then, uh, and then I came up, I was like, guys, I just got to point it out. There's, that bird is ridiculous, right? You remember that? Uh, just a quick question. Do any of y'all remember what I preached that Sunday? I don't either. I just remember the bird. That's the funny thing. Uh, well, I, I'll say this. Uh, to be honest, there's a little bird flying around today in our text. It's not a physical one. It's a textual one. Uh, for those of you who are rocking the, uh, the King James Version, or maybe, I don't know, maybe you're super smart and you're rocking the Latin Vulgate. You're reading from the original Latin. Uh, none of your texts will say this, but if you have a modern translation like uh, the NIV or the NASB, the ESV, the CSB, the RSV, the AV, I could keep going. There's a ton of abbreviations. Uh, before we started in verse 53, you may have seen a little subnote or text or a bracket of some kind and says maybe something along the lines of this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. How many of you have that in your Bible? Just raise your hand. How many of your Bible doesn't say that? Maybe it's a footnote at the bottom, okay? Your Bibles will have something along those lines, unless you're rocking the KJV. KJV said, nah, we're good. It's Bible, right? So, my thought is, for those of you, uh, th- th- this might act like a little bird, right? That, that little, like what? Like you might, you might keep seeing that and thinking that and like I'm preaching and it's like, but wait, <laughs> what about that? What are you going to do with that? And, uh, and that's the big question. I, I think I need to at least address that and explain that a little bit or else it's going to be the bird that you keep remembering and you don't remember everything else. Neither do it I, just saying, right? Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, like, I've, I've done this, I've done a personal study on this story before, like, just for my own edification, uh, but I haven't yet preached this passage, and, and preaching the text takes on an entirely different matter than just personal study, and i got to say, like, I've read way more than usual in preparation for this. I read a few 40-page articles, um, I read several published journals, I read several commentaries and sermons uh, to try to get to the bottom of this. And, and I, 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 what I found out was that it was still over my head, uh, that it was scholarship that was way too high above me. But let me try to bring it to a level where maybe we can at least understand what's happening and why there's that note and maybe some of the debate around it. Obviously, originally, this book didn't start out as this book. You know that, right? Like this book... Uh, was a series of different letters or gospels or stories that were, or, or, or prophecies, things that were written by an individual on a text, on a, on a piece of paper, and they were written by inspired prophets or apostles or maybe apostles' associates. And guess what? Like, they didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers and things like that. It was just plain text. 
those original writings, when, when, let's say, John sat down and wrote this, that original writing is most often referred to as an original autographed or an original manuscript, right? He's the one who wrote that. And what we believe as a church, our, our membership covenant, our statement of faith says that that original autograph is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. And you can see something along those lines in like 2 Peter chapter 1. This is what he says. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. That's what it means that the text is inspired. It comes from God. In fact, uh, inspired, the word inspired actually is found in 2 Corinthians 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. The literal there is breathed out by God because when you speak, you're, you're breathing out. It's all breathed out by God. So, so that original text, those original autographs are the inspired, inerrant word of God, meaning they're true, they're perfect, there's no error with them. And for the first 1,500 years of Christendom, there was no book, but a series of copies of those original manuscripts. And those original manuscripts, those copies of them, were passed around. They were distributed throughout the areas, throughout the regions, throughout the churches, and they were passed down throughout history, carefully handwritten copies of those original manuscripts. And they were distributed and shared and read aloud now, we have different kinds of manuscripts, some were, that were written in, in ways that were used for lectionaries, other ones were written with all capital Greek letters, some with lowercase, doesn't matter. All this to say, um, guess how many copies we have today that date back as far back as in the 100 ADs? Guess how many copies we have? 5,000. 801 copies. To put that in perspective, uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, we only have 10 copies of that, or manuscripts. Tacitus's histories and the annals, we only have two manuscripts of those. But the New Testament, we have over 5,800 handwritten copies in the whole or in parts or segments of these 27 new books or 27 books of the New Testament. And they are preserved in libraries all around the world. You can even find some of them online. In fact, you could go to the Bible Museum and see some of them. The Bible Museum does a really good job of explaining this, and not only that, but they have some of the original manuscripts, or sorry, not the original autographs, but they have some early manuscripts. Guys, no other ancient book comes close to the kind of preservation and wealth that this book has. Now, to say all of that about our text, here's what that little birdie is saying. Verses Chapter 7, verse 53, to chapter 8, verse 11, this, uh, the, the pericope about the woman caught in adultery, that story itself is missing from all the earliest manuscripts. Those copies that were copied from the original, this story isn't there. It doesn't show up in any of the copies until the 5th century. It's 400 years later, 400 to 500 years later. It doesn't show up until then. And when it does start showing up in the Bible, 
in those, in those manuscript copies that are in the Gospel of John, it shows up in a ton of different places when it started showing up. Some people put it uh, uh, after verse 36. Some people put it after verse 44 in chapter 7. Some people put it all the way back after chapter 21, verse 25. Some people even put it in the Gospel of Luke. These copyists. And most often, this story came with a little note on the side of it, some little mark that identified the story itself as kind of debatable about the nature of the text. What's even more ironic is that the, for the first 1,000 years of Christendom, no, no f- church father even comments on their text, on this story in their commentaries. For the first 1,000 years of Christendom. In fact, I mean, if you were to remove the text, if you were to remove this story from Scripture, verse 52 down to 8:12 flows perfectly. Nothing gets interrupted. One quick other piece of evidence, one final observation, is that there's a writing style in this story, and there's vocabulary that's used in this one passage that John never uses anywhere else, that never gets used anywhere else in the Gospel of John. It's unique to only this story. So here's the thing, the basic textual evidence suggests, most likely, that the Apostle John didn't actually write this story when he wrote his gospel. The textual evidence in the manuscripts, at a minimum, suggest that, at a minimum, this story was added to John's gospel later on by copyists in the 400s and 500s. Now, there are some who take a guess as to why that may have happened. Maybe it was intentionally left out because Jesus appears soft on adultery and husbands didn't want their wives getting a copy of a Bible that said Jesus would forgive that. Or fathers didn't want their daughters getting a copy where Jesus would forgive someone like this, right? Like, there's, there, there's that idea, which, again, there's nothing in history that suggests that. Some people are just trying to poke at it. But the real question, the ultimate question is, simply put, is this story supposed to be in the Bible? In other words, can we say legitimately with confidence, this is the word of the Lord? Can we? Well, uh, I don't know how this will make y'all feel about me. I, 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 I just don't think the, the, the evidence suggests it can be with 100% confidence. Now, for sure, there's going to be a ton of themes and parts in this story that are going to fit so well with the themes that we find throughout the New Testament. We're going to find hypocritical religious authorities who are just totally ignorant of themselves. We're going to find Jesus challenging them and trapping them. He's done it before. Go figure he'd do it again, right? We find Jesus subverting their attempt and exposing them. And we also find in this story, Jesus is just simply full of forgiveness and grace. Oh man, there's nothing new here. We have to be careful though. I know that some of you might be responding, oh, but I really love this story. And a lot of people have loved it. And, and, and I would just say, well, consensus doesn't determine truth. I would also say that 
Just because we might say that that sounds like Jesus doesn't mean it always is Jesus. Jesus can, uh, uh, in, in, <laughs> there's times in this book where he does some things, you're like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. He called her a what? He did what in the temple? So we can't use that sounds like Jesus, or we can't say that just because we like the story, that I can with confidence then say that this is the word of the Lord. So in reality, both Jesus and this book are simply things that we get received, that are given to us, not things that I can say like Thomas Jefferson did. Meh, I don't like that page. Meh, I don't want that. Meh, that's, that's terrible. Oh, I'll take that. That sounds good. We just don't get to do that. We just simply receive. So does this mean that we first, as a whole, then can't trust this book? Does this mean that, that one passage is done, so we just got to throw the whole thing out? Absolutely not. In fact, if anything, this strengthens our resolve on the legitimacy of the, the 66 books that are included in this Bible. I mean, think about it. Think about it. 5,800 copies, and apart from this one passage and maybe another one in the Gospel of Mark, and maybe those words at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, and amen, which aren't actually in the originals, by the way. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just stepping all toes. I didn't want to miss any of them, did I? Um, what would happen to the, the orthodox doctrine of Scripture if we were to remove these stories? Would, would we lose the Gospel? Mm -mm. What major differences would would we find nothing, actually, nothing at all. It doesn't change a single component of what we find in Scripture. And not only that, across all the other errors that we found in the copies, you know what they all pretty much are? Punctuation problems and misspelling of some words <laughs> and maybe some grammatical changes. That's it. None of the function changes. None of the, none of the, the, the truth changes. If you take this story away, it doesn't change a single thing about the doctrines of the Bible. Not a jot or a tittle of it. I just love saying that. Now, again, I'm also saying, I want to make it clear, does this also mean that this story didn't actually happen? Well, no, maybe it did. There's legitimate people out there, scholars who say, yeah, this is, this is a historical event, but it might not be canon. It's something that may have happened in history. I mean, didn't, I mean look at what John said. He said this. At the end of his gospel, Jesus performed many signs in this presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Huh. So this didn't record every single minute of his day. How annoying would that be? Right? Maybe it did happen. I, I, we can't exactly know for sure. But if we also look at it, does this story present to us a different Jesus than we already know? Absolutely not. It fits well with his character. It lines well with his message. It demonstrates well his ministry. If there was anything unorthodox, we'd give it the boot, right? It wouldn't be in there. It would have not been considered from God because God doesn't contradict himself. So all of this to say, uh, again, uh, that still may be way over your head. Um, if you if you want some additional help on textual criticism and things like that, 
Uh, you can see our membership covenant. There's a helpful statement in there. There's a helpful book that I'd commend you, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. I read through it. It's very helpful. I would also point you to something that our membership covenant points you to as well. It's called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, Biblical Inerrancy. I would strongly recommend that you read through those things as well. Regardless, what am I supposed to do with this today? That's the big question. Can you see my concerns? Can you see why I might be a little bit hesitant with this evidence? What am I, the preacher, charged to preach God's word to do with this story? Now, you you might be one of those saying, come on, Scotty B., you're just taking this way too seriously. Everybody likes the story. It's got a relevant message. Just preach it. You're right. There's also another relevant passage of Scripture found in the last part of this book that says, if anyone adds to the words of this book, the plagues of this book will be added to him. I don't want locusts swarming around me all day, and I don't want loathsome sores. Can you see my concern? I'd rather not have those things. I want to be careful with this, because I want to receive this, not change it. So all of this to say, Just because we love this story doesn't give it the authority of thus saith the Lord. So what's going to happen is is we're going to walk through this text as if it's on probation. Limited limited access, right? It's it's still there. It's still beautiful. It's a great story. Um, But what we're going to do is we're going to treat it uh, by allowing other texts to prove to us with their legitimate authority exactly what this story is showing us. Is that okay? We're still going to go through it. It's still going to be beautiful. Your heart's still going to get plucked. Trust me. Oh, yeah, that did happen, didn't I? Probably should have started with that. We're going to let other passages that that we know say, thus saith the Lord. We're going to let that be what determines the authority in this text. And this story still is going to be incredible. So let's let's walk through this as quickly as possible. (laughs) This story starts and ends with a whole new day, right? And Jesus, at the dawn of the new day, he goes down to the temple and he begins to teach again. That's not something new. He's done that twice already in the gospel, in this gospel, uh, chapter 7. He's already done it twice. And while he's teaching these people at dawn, later on, with all the crowds gathered around him, hearing him teach, there's some movements in the crowds outside and they start parting and another mob, a group of people come in and they approach Jesus and they're a group of scribes and Pharisees. You can tell by the way that they're dressed. And, and among them are a few who have gathered and are holding on to and dragging this woman. And they push her. They put her right in front of Jesus at the center of the whole crowd. And they stand her before Jesus. And this is what they say, verse 4. Hey, teacher, this woman, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery And the law of Moses commanded us to to stone such women. What do you say? Now, I... I, uh, uh, I don't know about you. The last I checked, it takes two to tango. Uh, You can't adulterate in isolation. That's impossible. So the question is, where's the man? Where's the dude? Maybe he was fast and ran off. 
Or maybe these religious leaders are just really chauvinistic. Don't know. But the man's not there. They just bring the woman. And they say that they caught her in the act of it. At the worst part of it. Not like after the fact. Caught in it. And they bring her to Jesus, dragging her out of that. And they say, Moses says she should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? Now, I'm about to tell you something that I, I, I agree can be a very hard thing to swallow. The law of Moses does legitimately say that the sentence for infidelity for both the man and the woman that are found guilty of it is death. Deuteronomy 22.22. If a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Whoa. Now that passage goes on to explain more instructions, specifically even about those who are engaged or betrothed to be married. If there's a woman betrothed to be married to a man and she sleeps with another man, they both deserve death. Leviticus 22, or sorry, Leviticus 20 is stocked full of prohibitions for all sorts of sexual immorality, most of which get condemned to death. Guys, the, the Bible is clear, at least on this level, that, that sexual immorality in all of its shapes and sizes is very sinful and very serious. And under the Old Testament law, the sentence of infidelity was death. So this woman is guilty of it, caught in it. There's witnesses that can bear testimony to it. And the whole crowd knows that. Jesus knows it too. Can you imagine how embarrassed, how ashamed to have you caught at your worst moment and dragged out into the public and say, hey, Look, the wide open knowledge of your sin being on display before everybody. And everybody knows it. Now, were the, the authorities in this text really concerned about righteously upholding the law? Did they really care about righteousness in the community and in their city? Of course not. First, if they did, they would have had the man too. They would have sent their fast guy after him. But more clearly, verse 6 shows us what the real motives are. Look, verse 6. The authorities asked this to trap Jesus in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Guys, you already know, based on that, we can't expect any kind of great deal of justice to be dealt here. To the accusers, this woman was just simply a means to an end. They were simply using her, her sin and her shame, to publicly discredit Jesus by trapping him. Now, again, that's not a new concept to the Gospels. Several times we see in other places where these religious leaders try to trap Jesus with questions about the old law or current living. And they say, she's guilty. The law says death. What do you say, Jesus? And they think they've got him. And what does Jesus do? He stoops down and starts riding in the dirt. Now, uh, a lot of 
preachers love to have a field day with this part of the text. What did he write in the dirt? Well, he, he wrote Jeremiah 17, 34. No, he wrote the Ten Commandments out. No, he drew a picture of the cross. No, he, he, oh, he drew a heart with rainbows coming out of it. In the uh, famous words of Dwayne the Rock Jackson, it doesn't matter. If it did, it would have said it. But he's down and he's drawing. He stays down for a while. The leaders apparently persist. They get maybe a little annoyed. Jesus finally stands up and he says, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw the stone at her. Did you notice? Did you hear what he said? He gives permission. The law says this. Go ahead. Go ahead and stone her. But there's this one condition in the law that you have forgotten about. You too must be without sin. Now, does this mean that that, that Jesus is making up this new standard where no one guilty of sin can actually hold someone else accountable to breaking the law. If we did, we'd have no justice in society at all. That's not what he's saying here. There, there's a part in Deuteronomy 13 that he's referencing when he says this. Deuteronomy 13, 9, it's also in 17, verse 7. Basically, the, the, the way that the old covenant worked was if if the witnesses caught someone in the act of some sort of transgression, the witnesses of the crime were the first ones to throw the stones. They were the first ones who were responsible for dealing the sentencing of the law, but here's the requirement that it gave. They couldn't be complicit in that sin. They couldn't be participants of the crime itself. They can't be guilty of that particular sin too. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is, yeah, you can go ahead if you haven't also committed adultery in your heart. Because you know that, that when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts talking about what adultery is. It's not just simply the physical act. It's also lust within your own heart. And with this one statement before the whole crowd of all the people, Jesus righteously turns the whole spotlight from this one woman and exposes all of their sin too. That also deserves the same sentence. Verses 8 and 9, after he said this, then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Guys, they came in like wild E. Coyote, setting a trap for the roadrunner. And once again, Jesus was just too fast and too intelligent. And he turns the trap on them. Those who came to expose Jesus are exposed. Those who came to discredit Jesus leave discredited. Those who came to shame Jesus leave in shame. They all walk away, not because judges and executioners must be sinless, but that they also too must be gracious. Why? Because 
every single one of us is just as riddled with sin as every other one of us. And that's another theme exposed elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. We misuse that when we say, well, I can't call anything bad then. That's not what that means. It means if I'm going to say, well, you did this bad and you deserve this, then I also need to be looking at myself. Well, I did the same thing and I also deserve the same sentencing. This isn't saying that we can't call out wrong, we can't call out sin, but if, we, if we're wanting to so quickly condemn someone else for their sin, we ought to be willing to as well for ourselves. Like, like really, how dull, how ignorant, how arrogant do you have to be to want someone else who is guilty of the same crime that you've committed for them to be condemned and you go free? And so these scribes and Pharisees, all her accusers, all the witnesses, they gone. They come to that conclusion, except for one. There was one who stayed. Verse 11, when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She answered, no one, Lord. There's still one there. It's Jesus. He knew her guilt. He knew the law. He could have carried out the sentencing. He had every right to. He wasn't guilty of the same sin. He wasn't complicit in it. And he actually wrote the law that condemned this. And in this, he just knowingly asks, is there anyone else here to condemn you? Guys, I think we need to understand the difference between condemnation and guilt, right? Condemnation is different from guilt. Guilt was already established here. She was guilty of breaking the law. Condemnation is the action taken that carries out the sentencing that that particular guilt deserves, right? So an example, right? You... uh, you get a speeding ticket, you're going like 120 and a 35. Uh, you get all sorts of punishments with that. You could spend some jail time, but, but I don't know what the sentencing exactly is. You go before a judge, they find you guilty of it, you plead guilty. The condemnation, the sentencing, you've got a $1,000 fine and you've got to take driving school or something, right? That's the condemnation, that's the sentencing. Or, or if, in another regard, you break the law in this way, you get two years in prison. Two years in prison is the act of carrying out the sentencing, the condemnation that the guilt deserves. So Jesus wasn't changing her guilt. That was already established, but he was addressing the condemnation that that guilt deserved. Was Jesus the just judge, the holy God, going to carry out the sentencing? Verse 11b, neither do I condemn you. <laughs> wait, 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 so Jesus, Jesus is making a way here for guilty, sinful people to escape the condemnation of the law? Isn't that kind of scandalous? Yep, that's exactly what the gospel is. 
It's exactly what the New Testament of the gospel of Christ Jesus is talking about with his free grace. Guys, you remember already we've seen in John chapter 3, God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world to carry out the sentencing deserved by our guilt. But to what? Save it. To rescue it from the condemnation that it deserved. We also see it in John 12. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge them. I'm not carrying out the sentencing. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Paul, later on in his letter, says, There is now, therefore, no, what? Condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You can tell I love that passage. I didn't even need that, right? And then he goes on in Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with this Jesus grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. You see, Jesus has the authority to forgive the guilt of sin that brings the condemnation so that no one anymore can bring any accusation before God about you to try to get you condemned. No one can bring you before God and say, he did this, she did that, she deserves this, he should get that. No, what happens is all accusations have no more standing before God. Satan can't bring an accusation before God about you. I can't bring an accusation. You can't even bring your own accusation before God and him consider it. If you are in Christ. Now this story doesn't stop here, obviously. If it did, we'd have reason to question its orthodoxy. Here's why. Because if there's no condemnation for sin from Jesus who is God, then, you know, why not live it up a little bit in the life of sin? Why not, right? I mean, shoot, if there's no punishment coming for sin, YOLO, live it up! Does this, does this give us any sort of license to sin? Absolutely not. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Don't abuse this free gift of grace by continuing your lifestyle of sin. Go and from now on, do not sin anymore. Not because you're afraid now of being condemned to stoning, but because you have met the holy God and you've been given, rescued, and transformed by his grace. And all of your guilt has been forgiven. And it's exactly what the Apostle Paul confirms in Romans 5 and 6. One of my favorite combinations of theological arguments. The law came in to multiply the trespass. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So if that's the case, then what should we say? Should we continue in sin so that that grace can keep abounding? Paul says, absolutely not, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
So the only proper response to experiencing the grace of pardoned past sins is purity. It's not giving into temptation again. Or else we would find ourselves abusing that grace. And boy, if we can abuse grace, how calloused of a heart should we have if we do? So all of this, all of this testifies to that grace. And this story, this, this criticized, beautiful story shows us, illustrates for us, the themes that are carried throughout the whole New Testament already. It illustrates what lies at the heart of the gospel that we preach, the gospel by which we are saved, upon which we can even stand before a holy God. Because you see, when the law finds us, it catches us in our sin, and it drags us out into the public and outs every single one of us with the same guilt, that we're all riddled with sin, that we're all broken, we all miss the mark, we all come short. And you know, I, I, I don't think I have to try to work too hard to convince you of that, do I? Just take a look at your last week. Look at your own heart, the impatience, the frustration, the anger. It's kind of self-evident, right? And the law drags you out and exposes those things as wrong. That's all it can do. And it demands the condemnation. It demands our death before a holy judge that not only does Scripture present him as a just and holy God, but it also says that he is merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the judge that the law tries to accuse us before. And though God has every right to carry out this condemnation, we hear him say, I don't condemn you. Guys, when our disgrace is exposed, his free grace is offered. He covers us in our disgrace with his free, matchless, amazing grace. And then he sends us out, having been transformed and continually being transformed by that same matchless grace. Did you know that your sin never surprises Jesus? When he took your sin on himself as he hung on the cross, he bore every judgment for every single sinful action and attitude and thought that you and I would ever have. They were all future to him. In the timeline of history, in the timeline of humanity. So your sin can't surprise him because he's already received the punishment for your sin. So in other words, as a Christian, you are free from all condemnation because Jesus paid it all he took what it all deserved upon himself. And so that's where we can actually go and find rest 
We can rest in His grace. We can rest in His goodness. We can rest in His forgiveness because Jesus won't stone you. And if God won't stone you, then neither should we stone ourselves or one another. Let us live in His grace because His grace doesn't give you a license to keep on sinning. It gives you every reason to stop. So come to Him. Like receive this free grace and go and live this transformed life. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Before we pray, I would just encourage those of you who maybe this is the first time in your life where you're getting the fullest picture of the gospel that has been painted through the whole narrative of all 66 books of the Bible. The gospel of free grace. And maybe you thought that you were too wicked or too undeserving to even find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And let me just say, welcome to the club. Because that's exactly who God's grace is designed for. Those who know they need it. So if you have never received the free grace of God that is in Christ Jesus by faith, if you want your guilt to be absolved and the condemnation that you keep carrying on yourself to be carried by Christ, receive it by faith today. That's all it takes. It doesn't take you raising your hand. It doesn't take you being prayed over. It takes you receiving it by faith. Because it's free. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that covers every part of our disgrace. We thank you that Jesus embodied the gospel in a way that means that we are not condemned before the holy God if we are found in Christ, but that we are saved. We're rescued from it. And not only that, but we get to stand before you for all eternity, undeservedly. Thank you for not condemning us. Thank you for not giving us what we rightly deserved. But in your grace and in your mercy, you forgive us. You absolve us of our guilt. Our ledger is clean. There's no more accusations that can be brought before you that would cut us off from your love. All because of Jesus. Oh God, we love you. This is just so good of a gospel. And we thank you for this story that points us to it. May we be a gospel people, a gracious people, who aren't wanting to condemn others to be stoned but are willing to join one another in our embarrassment and in our worst moments and walk with and love and encourage one another.
by the same gospel that you walk with us with. I pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you. And I would also just say, if you have any questions or if you think I handled this terribly, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and, and, and I know we've got a resident scholar who might be able to help clarify even more. Um, he might even correct me. I'd be okay with that. Um, but with that, I do want to just offer prayer over anyone who needs prayer, care, healing, anything. We'd love to pray over you. I would also just remind you that we have our, our potluck going on right after this. And uh, I'm going to pray for that after we have our, our benediction prayer, which comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, we thank you for the fellowship we get in the body. Sometimes that fellowship happens in a sanctuary, and sometimes we get to have it in a fellowship hall with food in our faces. I pray, Jesus, that you would bless our gathering, bless the food, nourish our bodies with it, and may there be great community down there as we gather together over good food and a really good gospel. We love you. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Love you guys.